0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: A lot of people up very, very late last night watching election returns. But put down your bottles of Valium no matter what anxieties you're feeling. Right now, we've got a great panel here to break down all the results and tell you exactly uh, how things are developing. Because this election is still very much alive and well. Um, I, I do, before introducing the panel, want to I, I want to say something that I tweeted out early this morning because it's going to come into play in our conversation today. Um, the president of the United States has many, many powers. We all know that, but A power that President Trump does not have is to declare who the winners are of elections. And that includes his declaration last night that he won the presidential race. Now, that matters very much right here in Georgia uh, because Georgia could now play a crucial role as we're still waiting to see who did, in fact, win the state in the presidential contest in deciding whether it's Biden or Trump who were uh, sworn in on January 20th. All right, let's get right to Oh, one other quick note. Uh, we're going to do two live shows again today. We'll be live at 2 because the situation is so fluid that we want to stay on top of all the news as it develops. Okay, let's get right to it. You know, earlier this morning, I sent the AJC political reporter, Greg Bluestein a quick note. I said, Greg, I always love having you on this show. I know you've been up all night. I know you must be tired If you really want, I'd be glad to give you a pass. And you wrote back, Greg, I'm in, with an exclamation (laughs) point. You are relentless. You're relentless, Blue Steve.
2: (laughs) I guess this is our Super Bowl combined with our final exam combined with everything else. But uh, yeah, I I maybe got an hour of sleep last night, but... That's what we're. That's what we signed up for here in Georgia, in battleground
1: that's, Georgia. That's that's exactly, that's exactly what it's all about. Um, we're really happy that you are here to help us interpret how things are developing in the state of Georgia. Um, Dr. Andra Gillespie uh, joins us. She's of course a professor of political science at Emory University and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute on Race and Difference um andra i understand you were up late last night for uh channel 11 here in atlanta right uh yes um
3: i'm going on fumes right now but i'm feeling okay so i have a little bit of second wind even though i got a little bit of sleep last night
1: (laughs) okay your colleague (laughs) from emory university's department of political science dr alan abramowitz uh is with us uh alan not much rest for you i'm sure, either.
4: No, I did get some sleep, and I got up very early. Um, had to, you know, catch up on what the results were showing at, at 5.30 this morning. Um, so it's, yeah. been, it's been a long um, night, and, and, and we've got a ways to go.
1: Yeah, we sure do. And Dr. Audrey Haynes <coughs> is with us. Uh, Audrey, uh, of course, she's political science professor at University of Georgia and also oversees the Applied Politics Program, which she created out at uh, UGA. Um, Audrey, were you up all night?
0: Well, I wasn't quite up all night, but I was up very early yesterday because we were running a um, voting behavior study across a lot of Georgia precincts, looking at how people are interacting with their new machines. And then Chuck Bullock and I and Professor Joe Watson were helping our Grady students uh, up until about 11 o'clock doing commentary, even though we were all Virtually, you didn't have anything to really say because so many of the results weren't in at that point in time.
1: Um, well, thank you for being with us as well. Uh, if, if it's all right with you, I'd like to start with what we do know definitively uh, this morning. Um, Greg Bluestein, the starting point for that, I think, uh, would be that Kelly Leffler did win – what was essentially a Republican primary within the jungle race, the 20-candidate race uh, for Senate seat number two. Uh, She beat Doug Collins, and uh, he very quickly conceded in a very gracious way, said he was going to support her, and she (laughs) sent back a note saying, you're a great conservative, which is certainly not the way (laughs) she was describing him for the last uh, year, (laughs) Uh, Greg. No, I was
2: surprised at how quickly that race was settled, though. I mean, she she's up by about six percentage points. Um, she's actually closer yeah. to Reverend Warnock, the Democratic frontrunner, right now in the polls than, than she is uh, to Doug Collins. Um, so that, that tells you a lot about the state of the race. I think that her her ad onslaught really worked and really helped with with voters who might have just been going to vote for President Trump and you know didn't know too much about either of the candidates and just
1: kind of went down and picked her. So they both were, of course, trying to out-Trump one another. Um, and you're suggesting that uh, it may have been the ads that convinced people that she was truly uh, the Trump candidate in this race.
2: Yeah, you're talking about a candidate who spent, between her and her husband, about $30-plus plus million promoting her campaign, most of it on the airwaves. So I think that that, that, that had an effect. Doug Collins, the four-term congress- congressman, tried to kind of uh, – Counteract that with free media, with all sorts of attention-grabbing things uh, and, and appeals to grassroots conservatives, but I think in the end, just the add-on slot. And if you look at where she won, um, she she got second place behind Reverend Warnock and all these Democratic-leaning counties in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Um, so she was the you know she was the top Republican choice in the most populous parts of the of the state, um, and she held her own in, in in North Georgia, which was supposed to be Doug Collins's main Uh, uh, fertile ground. And, you know, she did really well in northeast Georgia. So I think that's that's what put her over the top.
0: Yes. And, you know, in a race where you had two people who were very conservative and trying to um, uh, show everyone how conservative they were, I think in the end, especially the stuff in North Georgia and across the state, the fact that Kelly Loeffler was hanging out with Marjorie Taylor Greene, but also at the very end, Governor Kemp came out and did some you know, very specific ads. And if you're sort of torn between two that you think are kind of the same, you look for those kinds of cues and they may have helped people in the end decide which way they were going to break. So even though Trump didn't come in and give a cue, the governor did give a cue.
1: Andra, uh, uh, Doug Collins had the support of Speaker David Ralston, who traveled the state mostly campaigning for legislative uh, candidates, Republican legislative candidates, but, of course, also putting in a good word for Collins. And uh, obviously, uh, Governor Kemp, who appointed her to the seat, was out there for um, Kelly Loeffler. Uh, so Governor Kemp shows a little more muscle than the speaker in this race. Is that a fair way to st- uh, say that? Um, well, I think it's fair uh, to say that Governor
3: Kemp won this particular battle. Um, but if we look at the state legislature, we might say that, you know, Speaker Ralston still has juice. So, you know, I think we're still looking at there being yeah. sort of a balance of Republican power between the two of, between the two of these people. And I, I'm cautioning is reading too much into the fact that that Kemp won the the Collins fight.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's right. Uh, it, just in terms of this election itself. I mean, Ralston has not lost this, the power that he holds in the legislature, although he's going to get a challenge uh, when they come back into session for the speakership. Alan, you want to weigh in?
4: Well, I want to say what I think is really the, <clears throat> the big story of this election in Georgia, uh, which, which, which is that we're seeing the continuation of this uh, long-term trend uh, of the state trending uh, towards the Democrats. Um, so Joe Biden may or may not end up winning the state. Although right now I think I think uh, he's maybe got a slight edge uh, once all the votes are counted. Um, but but you know that's a big shift over the last eight years. Uh, and where we look at where is that happening? Um, I mean it's it's happening in the Atlanta suburbs. Uh, and those suburbs, you look at uh, the vote not just in the traditionally Democratic suburb uh, areas of Fulton and and DeKalb, uh, but you look at Cobb and Gwinnett and. Cobb County went big for for Biden in this election, um, and there's still some votes yeah. out there. Uh, and you know, uh, meanwhile, you know the small towns in rural Georgia remain very, very, very Republican. Uh, outside of metro Atlanta, everything except a few small metro areas is very Republican. So we've got a huge urban-rural split in the state. Um, but Biden won close to 30 percent of the white vote. According to the Georgia exit poll, he's getting 29 percent of the white vote. That could change. You know, they, they have to adjust those exit polls. Um, but I think it'll end up close to that. And, and that's, that's you know, what everyone's been saying is, is really necessary for a Democrat to win statewide in Georgia. is get close to 30 percent of the white vote. And where that's coming from, that growing share of the white vote is coming from the Atlanta suburbs.
1: Um, actually, I want to uh, get. We're going to dig down even deeper into the presidential race in a few minutes. I don't want to quite leave the Leffler uh, uh, race yet against Warnock because I want to make sure our listeners do know, Greg. We're going to now have a runoff between Leffler and Warnock on January fifth, which means all of our holidays are ruined.
2: <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. And by the way, still still potential for another runoff that day too. But uh, one of the yes. other interesting yes. things that happened in that was, yes, Reverend Warnock was the Democratic frontrunner and led the, led the vote as expected. But he was closer to 40 percent in some of the most recent polls. He ends – right well, at least right now, there's still votes outstanding. But he's around 32 percent of the vote, so not as high um, as he could have been. And the, I think the, one of the fascinating parts of this is all the Democratic hand-wringing over Matt Lieberman, the son of the former Senator Joe mm-hmm. Lieberman, not getting out of the race – Matt Lieberman's at three percent of the vote right now. You know who's higher than him? Uh, a Democrat that we barely talked about, Deborah Jackson, the former mayor of Lithonia. She got more than three hundred thousand votes, about seven percent of the overall uh, ballot, um, and we, you know, she she ran a very under the radar campaign. Mm.
1: All right, we're going to have plenty of time to talk about that runoff in the weeks ahead, and we certainly will. But let me again uh, go to uh, things that we know for certain at this point. Alan, you just mentioned that we uh, certainly learned in this election more than ever before the metro Atlanta suburbs are truly now, uh, as they're blue. And you point out how, how big the vote was in Cobb for Joe Biden, uh, but also we should say that Lucy McBath secured her seat against Karen Handel in the 6th mm-hmm. District, and uh, Carolyn Bordeaux, the Democrat in the 7th District race, uh, the uh, apparent winner over the Republican, Rich McCormick, in the 7th. Mm-hmm. We knew, de- we knew Gwinnett was becoming increasingly blue, but this also means that Forsyth, which has been a Republican county, just doesn't have the power anymore, or maybe there's some voters up there starting to look at Republicans, but northwest and northeast Georgia uh, suburban are now blue counties. Yes, Alan?
4: Yeah, I mean, if you look at um, the 7th Congressional District, uh, the bulk of it is Gwinnett County. That's where Carolyn and Bordeaux uh, piled up big margins um, uh, I, I haven't looked at the uh, breakdown by county in this election, but I suspect Forsyth still went pretty heavily for McCormick, um, but it's being outvoted right now. Uh, and the population growth is primarily in the Gwinnett part of that district. Now, uh, it, what we're going to have to watch is uh, what happens to that district <laughs> uh, with re- when redistricting happens next year. Um, I'm sure the Republicans will still control the legislature and the governorship are going to be looking at uh, ways to try to redraw the lines in a way to try to uh, uh, take that district back or redraw the district in a way that makes it harder for Carol and Bordeaux to hang on to that district. But you know, we'll have to wait and see what, what they do. But for now, yes. I mean, that was uh, a nice pickup for the Democrats. Oh, I mean, I
3: completely agree with, with, with Alan's assessment. Um, and the thing that I'm always interested in looking at is what particular metro county is going to be next. So I think, you know, we had sort of the small kind of in-town version of blue Atlanta and we started seeing it extend outside of the perimeter. It seems like it's deepened. And I think it's just a question of when we start to see other counties now start to trend um, in a blue direction. I mean, nobody would have thought 10 years ago, the Cobb County would have been it. And so could we be talking about another county that's, you know, adjacent, to some of these newly democratic counties in the
1: future. Audrey, unmute un- your phone.
0: <laughs> I'm going to claim I'm, I'm pretty tired today, too, and I haven't really been able to get into that egg McMuffin. So, um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> one of those things that we're seeing, which I thought was surprising, is that um, if you look at the exit polls, Trump was doing a little bit better in Georgia in suburban areas than we would have expected. I think there was more... There was more um, hope among Democrats that he would do, um, you know, better. And one of the things we're seeing is that he he did better among the middle class, if you can trust the exit polls that are coming back, too. And that suggests that even in Georgia, you know, the economy issue seems to have been driving some of those votes um, for the areas that he did better than expected. At the same time, Democrats were doing uh, pretty well in areas um, I wonder too what uh, what the panel thinks about some of the splits that we're seeing in the Hispanic vote. Because even in Georgia, um, the ex- we saw more of a split again if we trust the exit polls, and that seems to be a, a pretty interesting outcome to me too. We'll what do you think, Alan? Alan?
4: Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't read too much into the <clears throat> the exit polls in Georgia for, for gauging the Hispanic vote because it's very small. Uh, it's certainly growing. It's certainly going to be important, uh, but. Uh, you know, I just don't think the numbers are that reliable uh, at, at, at this point uh, regarding the Hispanic vote. What I thought was kind of interesting was looking at the African-American vote, which is very large in Georgia. It was 30 uh, percent of the vote according to the exit poll, um, and, and Biden got, uh, you know, almost got about 89 percent of it according to the exit poll. But so if you break down the African-American vote by gender, Trump's getting about 15% of the vote among, I believe that was the number, among African-American men. Um, he's only getting about 8% among African-American women. So there's an interesting, and, and there's a gender gap among Hispanic voters as well, um, along those lines uh, nationally, as, as well as in Georgia. So, um, so I think that's an interesting phenomenon this, that you know, the Trump campaign made uh, a, a, a really uh, a pretty big push for, uh, to, to attract votes from African-American men. It looks like they actually, um, and I'm a little surprised by this, to tell you the truth, but it looks like they actually made some inroads there.
3: So I'll agree that Trump made some inroads among African-American men. It wasn't exactly what they predicted. And I think it's also just important to note that that gender gap between black women and black men um, has been around you know, before this election cycle as well. Right. So it's not unusual to see polls where you have well over 90% of black women voting Democratic, but you'll see black men voting in the high 80s. And so the fact that it's from the the high 80s to the mid 80s for, for Donald Trump isn't surprising. I mean, it suggests the type of growth That wouldn't have actually been crazy for George W. Bush in 2004, where nationally he gets this two percentage point gain. So nationally, Trump got a three percentage point gain. So, yeah, I mean, I will concede that some of the targeted outreach efforts towards African-American men may have worked. It's either that, and and we'll figure out a way to test this. So it was either those ads or it was Ice Cube and Lil Wayne, and we'll have to see sort of whether or not that was uh, was the case. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I think we forget that there are gender gaps even within communities of color as they are so
4: democratic in their orientation, we just tend to ignore them. Right. Yeah. I kind of add one, one thing that I think is very interesting here, which is that um, according to the national exit poll, and again, this is subject to revision, but um, non-white voters made up 35% of the electorate in 2020, 35%. Um, <clears throat> I think that's up from 29 or 30% in 2016. So... We're clearly seeing uh, the, this increasingly diverse electorate in the United States, um, and Trump may barely hold on, um, but I still think that is a real warning sign to, to Republicans, and, and we see it in Georgia as well, of course, that this growing diversity, you know, is, is, a, is a potential danger to a party that is that is relying so heavily on on the votes of uh, of older white. Uh, a predominantly non-college-educated voters, that's a shrinking share uh, of the electorate. And, and so that doesn't portend well for the future of the Republican Party, regardless of, of the ultimate outcome of this election.
1: Um, Greg, I, I want to go to the other Senate race. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, um, and I'm using the New York Times uh, uh, vote totals. If, I, let me a- ask a question, actually. I've been trying to look at election returns on the secretary of state's website and I keep refreshing the page and the totals on their secretary of state, Georgia secretary of state's page, they have a timestamp of like 1.55 in the morning. If there's somebody in the Secretary of State's office who happens to be listening to the show right now, could you explain to us why we're not getting updated numbers from you? Because I would think you're kind of the official uh, uh, talliers of the vote. Nevertheless, Greg, uh, in, uh, in the New York Times tallies, David Perdue has been hanging just at the edge of 50% plus one. Virtually all night long, he's got 50.8% of the vote to Ossoff's 47% of the vote. We're still uh, looking at a lot of Democratic precincts that haven't sent in, we haven't gotten counts on absentee ballots. Is there a chance, though, that Purdue can win this thing without a runoff? Or or is it more likely Democratic votes, as they will for Biden, are going to uh, change the, the nature of that race?
2: Um, John Ossoff has a clear shot at forcing a runoff right now, but his problem is he is underperforming um, Joe Biden. So while 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 David Perdue is more tracking with President Trump, um, John Ossoff has slightly fewer votes um, than than, um, than than Joe Biden, and th- that means he has a he has a bigger hill to kind of overcome. Of course, all he needs to do is get uh, David Perdue under that fifty percent mark, and as you mentioned, he's at fifty point eight right now. So he's looking at narrowing that margin, and we still have got votes, particularly in metro Atlanta, that are still outstanding. And about that Secretary of State's website, one of the confusing things that we hope your the listeners understand is when the Secretary of State's website says all precincts are reporting, yet there's still outstanding votes in so many of these counties. What it means is that as early votes come in, they're not added as a new precinct. They're added to the precincts where they're cast. So that's, that's a cause for confusion this morning. As we keep on saying that, let's say there's votes outstanding in Fulton, but it, but it shows all the precincts reporting or county X. That's why we're still saying that, because so many of these early votes still have not yet been tallied.
1: OK, uh, I'm glad you said that. I just refreshed again the Secretary of State's uh, website while you were doing that. And we now have finally totals from nine nineteen fifty-two uh this morning. So thank you uh, to the Secretary of State for finally getting a sum up. <laughs> dated uh, totals. Um, uh, Audrey, Ossoff looked like a guy who was on the move. There were people who thought he had serious momentum moving into yesterday's election. Uh, But as Greg says, he underperformed Biden. What's interesting about it is that in the polling of of Georgia, um, what we saw was Purdue underperforming compared to what his approval ratings have been For a long time, he had been he had higher approval ratings than uh, Governor Kemp and President Trump. And yet he was uh, in the polls in a virtual tie in the mid 40s with uh, John Ossoff. So what's going on in that race, do we think?
0: Well, I'm going to I'm going to let you know that uh, your sound dropped off there for me at the end. So I didn't quite catch every component of your of your answer. I mean, of your question. So my answer may not be um, as as um, matching as it should be but so you know this was an interesting race i mean you know one of the things that we're going to be looking at is you know polling error and you know polls are tough i mean they are, are they are tough and this was you know when things get this close there could be a lot of factors that play into it but i will say that at the end Uh, The enormous amount of advertising, I will just tell you, in my own area of Clark County where I live, which is a place that generally has a lot of Democrats, uh, David Perdue spent a tremendous amount of money on his, um, his direct mail. Uh, He spent uh, a large amount of money in his advertising. And there at the end, the advertising was very, very negative um, against Osof And finally, we got that link to China that China was paying Osof And, you know, Mm -hmm. so, you know, one of the things we know is that negative ads can really dampen um, you know, that ability to mobilize. So even even if they he's not persuading voters to vote for him, if he dampened Osov, and that's we see that underperformance. So I may I might say that the campaign in this sense may have had an impact on um Ossoff's, uh vote vote tally at the end.
3: You know, I've kind of gone back and forth earlier in the night when some of the first results were coming in Um, actually, Purdue had more votes in terms of absolute numbers than even Donald Trump did. And so, you know, that's changed over the course of the evening. So the big question that I was thinking of is whether or not um, Purdue had something of a personal vote that might actually overcome any deficits or any challenges that Donald Trump would face in this case. So um, it could be that we're looking at something that's really correlative with the presidential vote um or Purdue figured out a way to get some people who didn't vote for Donald Trump to support him. Um and so that's gonna take a you know a deeper dive and I would actually have to look at the individual data just so that I could at least cross it to see what would happen. But yeah, I mean I think, you know, if, if Purdue is underperforming, it might be because Trump, even if he wins, comes in sort of lower than we would have expected a Republican presidential candidate to, but Purdue has held his own. And so um, even though there yeah. very well could be a runoff in this race, uh, because Shane Hazel is actually outperforming Joe Jorgensen, who's the, Republic- uh, the Libertarian presidential candidate, um, I also wouldn't be surprised if Purdue manages to stay above 50%. Yeah,
4: I, I think one thing to keep in mind is that um, I mean David Purdue is the incumbent, um, and there is there is still an an, an incumbency advantage. Uh, it's small, much. It's a lot smaller than it used to be. But, you know, you can you can look at Maine where we're seeing the same thing. I mean, Susan Collins actually is outperforming Donald Trump by a much bigger margin in Maine. And that and that may allow her to hang on to that seat, even though it looks like uh, Joe Biden is going to is going to carry Maine by uh, a double digit margin. Um, so that's one to watch uh, there. It's not decided yet. Uh, and we see this, you know, in many of these races around the country um, where, um Incumbents uh, are, are hanging on now. Now, not all the incumbents are are are, are doing that. Um, in in Colorado and Arizona, it looks like. I mean, the Republican incumbents there really did did not do well, uh, relative to the uh, even compared to the presidential candidate. So, it just depends on, on on the individual candidate. One one thing that I think is stunning, uh, and I guess we'll maybe we'll talk about this later. Is that we really need to talk about the turnout in this election, uh, both nationally and in Georgia, just through the roof. Uh, we we kind of saw this coming with the early voting and boy, it's been confirmed now. And, and uh, you know, we have some estimates now what the total votes going to look like, uh, what the overall turnout's going to look like nationally and in Georgia. And it's amazing.
1: All right. We're going to, we are going to look at that. I also want to look at uh, in a little more depth at the uh, Trump Biden race here in Georgia and nationally for that matter, but let's get our first break of the show out of the way and come back with more on Political Rewind. Panel, no napping during this brief break.
5: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else.
1: We have a good portion of our A-team, our post-election uh, analysts with us. Unfortunately, because of the way we're now doing the show by remote, we can't put the whole A-team together as we used to do uh, when the races first got underway, but we do have doctors Andra Gillespie, uh, Alan Abramowitz, and Audrey Haynes uh, with us. Uh, Amy Steigerwald was with us all night last night covering uh, the elections, and it was great to have her uh, there, maybe we'll get back into the studio sometime and can all uh, get together again. And Greg Bluestein, of course, mm-hmm. is with this political reporter for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. All right. Um, Greg, uh, uh, let's talk a little about Trump Biden, both nationally and here in Georgia. In many ways, Greg, we are now seeing a nightmare scenario that many people feared and have talked about for weeks. The election returns, people who, many people who went to bed last night convinced that Donald Trump had beaten all of the polls, all of the odds that were stacked against him and essentially won a second term. And at two o'clock or so this morning, President Trump uh, went into the East Room where he had his, his party and he said, among other things, this.
5: This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we we did win this election. So our goal now is to ensure the integrity for the good of this nation. This is a very big moment. This is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at 4 o'clock in the morning and add them to the list. Okay? It's, it's a very sad, it's a very sad moment. To me, this is a very sad moment. And we will win this. And we, as far as I'm concerned, we already have won it.
1: So I just want to thank you. And- so, uh, Greg, the country is already uh, so tense, so terribly divided. So, there's been so much anxiety over this election, and President Trump at two, two o'clock this morning uh, chooses to uh, light the, uh, the 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 uh, uh, pile of of anxiety wood that's built mm-hmm. up. Um, I want to give each of you just a chance to respond both to what you heard the president say and to the whole situation we find ourselves in. Greg?
2: Yeah, I mean, of course he said we want voting to stop. Well, it had stopped. It was just being tallied, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think, I hope that most of the electorate uh, recognizes that because the media has been tr- foreseeing this scenario for a long time. It's exactly why Joe Biden was going for the route. He was going for uh, Texas and, and Georgia to make it so that it wasn't going to be close and look, exactly what we thought was happening was happening too with vote, vote by mail. The, and when Democrats were encouraging and aggressively urging their supporters to vote early absentee or in person, um, that means that those, especially those mail-in ballots, get tallied later, it takes longer to tally them. And that's why you're starting to see um, <laughs> Joe Biden uh, either close the gap with, with, with Trump in these battleground states or uh, over, overpass overcome him. And uh, and we saw this coming, and that's why we've been kind of pleading with, with our readers and, and the electorate at large just to be patient with, with these votes. So,
3: you know, there have been a couple of things. I, I've said a lot on Twitter, so if you want to look, you can look at it, Andre Gillespie, and I was uh, t- testing, or, uh, tweeting in, in real time sort of when that speech happens. But in general, in terms of waiting for the vote, we are not four-year-olds with a marshmallow in front of us that we can't eat. We are old enough to be able to wait and old enough to understand what's going on. Um, it's unfortunate that the president doesn't want to behave in that way, but it's the lot of can and we have to. But I also want to put this in perspective. So based on sort of like the counts, there are about 135 million votes that have been counted already. The estimates are that this is 160 million vote election. And so what President Trump suggested in terms of trying to that the count last night, to not counts the votes of 25 million people, some of whom I am sure voted for him. That is unconscionable. Audrey?
0: Well, I would add, uh, you know, one sideline is that uh, President Trump sounded amazingly like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons during that, that uh, discussion to me. But also, it just gives more credence to this notion that he— is unconcerned about the erosion of democratic norms that have happened under his administration. And once again, you know, one moment we we um, hear him declaring that the election is fraudulent, and then the next moment we hear him declaring that he's won and they're trying to steal the election that was not fraudulent but now is fraudulent. And it's really doing a disservice to the American public, to our institutions, to his voters, and to our standing in the world that he would say that, because we're supposed to be the bastion of leadership when it comes to democracy. And, and he is, as a, the representative of it right now, not representing us very well.
4: Well, I completely agree with uh, what Audrey and Andre um, and Greg have been saying. Um, and in fact, it's, it's noteworthy that uh, when President Trump was, was making those remarks last night that the number of media outlets actually broke in uh, and interrupted him to uh, correct what he was saying and to make the point that, no, um, he hasn't won the election uh, and, it's not for, and, and the, this is not a fraudulent process. Uh, in fact, no election is ever decided completely on election night. Uh, We never finished counting all the votes on election night, Uh, and uh, this this is just a normal. uh, The difference is that this year we have a much larger uh, number of these absentee ballots that take longer to count. They are totally legitimate votes. Uh, And don't forget, in a lot of these states where these absentee ballots are still being tabulated are actually run by Republicans um, and have Republican uh, election officials. So um, to claim that this is somehow fraudulent uh, and a disgrace is is just un- unconscionable. Uh, but it isn't going to change the outcome. And I don't believe there's any uh, legitimate way that he can uh, challenge these results uh, in, in, in court. I mean, there could be dispute, disputes about certain states if they end up being extremely close. Uh, but. Uh, right now, I just don't don't see any way that Trump can go to court, let alone like I'm going to go to the Supreme Court. he thinks somehow, because you know he uh, has a, a conservative majority on the Supreme Court, that they will just uh, end end the vote count or something. Uh, that's that's just preposterous.
1: So um, let let's take a look just at Georgia in terms of all of this. Uh, there were people who felt last night when they saw Donald Trump. Uh, Take the lead in the state. Uh, They thought that uh, he, you know, again, we're talking about the difference between counting in-person ballots and then all the absentee ballots that had to come in from uh, counties that are typically much more Democratic and where absentee ballots were were, uh, turned in by Democrats at larger percentages uh, than Republicans did. Uh, And they thought, well, Trump's won Georgia after all the efforts Democrats made here just to be uh, 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 certain of what we're talking about here. As of 930 this morning, again, now that we've got new numbers from the secretary of state's office, Donald Trump does have 50.4 percent of the Georgia vote and Joe Biden has 48.3 percent. Now, I know numbers are hard to deal with on radio, but let me tell you what that means. Trump has gotten two million three hundred and eighty-two thousand votes to Biden's two million two hundred eighty thousand plus votes. So, Greg Bluestein, uh, there are still a lot of votes out there, and um, even the New York Times needle. Andre, let me come to you because you're the data cruncher first. Um, the, even the New York Times needle in the middle of last night was leaning a little bit towards Joe Biden winning the state. But but tell us, as the data cruncher of this uh, uh, panel right now, uh, what your make of all that? Oh, I'm a data
3: cruncher among data crunchers here. I mean, so if you look at the way that. Well, I
1: understand there's... that. We've also got. You're right. I should never have said mm-hmm. that. We have three data crunchers, and then Blue Steed and me, who just, uh, you know, write about and talk about uh, politics. But go <laughs> ahead. <laughs>
3: Sure. I mean, if you yeah. look at the, if you just do kind of your back the envelope arithmetic from the exit polls, the exit polls are suggesting that Biden is going to do well in some of these states that are too close to call. And part of this is just having to wait for all of the numbers to come in and do their due diligence. So last night when Trump was up by seven points or however many it was, right? It did look like all of these polls were wrong, but we were operating with incomplete information, and so we were just patient and waited for the numbers to come in. We would see the close vote. Now I know what the exit polls say. I, you know, also you know know that they will adjust those, right? If it turns out their weights are wrong and they've like overcounted some, you know, some demographic and undercounted another one. But what we always knew was that this race was supposed to be close. Um, And we figured that that five-point margin from 2016 was going to shrink to something much smaller. And so that's what it looks like. And so the fact that Donald Trump is only ahead by somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000-ish votes, it would take a few 10,000, suggests that the state is becoming more competitive and that Donald Trump is underperforming in this state. There's no reason he should be only at 100,000 or so votes. Of of, of of Joe Biden. Like, that really shouldn't be happening. So he shouldn't be taking a victory lap. This is a moment for some reflection.
1: Alan, uh, you started at about 5.30 this morning sending me emails as you were watching various states around the country and vote totals. And uh, you're suggesting in those emails to me that the Biden path to victory uh, is stronger than a lot of people out there, again, who went to bed last night thinking Trump had the White right. House locked up or heard him at 2 a.m. Uh, Biden's path to victory is much stronger than people realize.
4: Right. And in fact, if anything, it's gotten a little bit stronger since then. Um, so we know uh, Biden's already leading in Arizona and Arizona may or may not have been called already, but. Biden is leading in Arizona. He's leading in Nevada. He's expected to probably win there. Um, he's leading in Wisconsin. He's probably going to win there. He's now taking the lead in Michigan, apparently. I saw uh, Audrey, I think, just uh, the message about that. He's taking the lead in Michigan. Um, that's only going to grow. Um, that's all he needs. Um, if he just wins those states where he's now leading, um, he will get to 270 electoral votes, and that's, you know, that's one more than he needs to, uh, to win a, for a majority in the electoral college. But he also has uh, a, a real chance to win both Georgia and Pennsylvania. Um, so uh, right now, Pennsylvania, he's still got a big deficit, but there are a lot of absentee ballots out there. And Nate Cohn, who's the New York Times sort of data guru, um, has projected just based on the ratio of absentee to election day votes that are outstanding in Pennsylvania, that when all of the votes are counted, that Biden is likely to win Pennsylvania. Uh, not certain, uh, but, but uh, they're projecting that he will win by a couple of points. Uh, and we know Georgia is still very much up for grabs. So in the end, uh, I, you know, I think right now, I, I would much rather be in Biden's position than in Trump's position. Um, I, I think um, Biden, had, but Trump could still win, uh, but I think Biden has uh, right now definitely the clearer path to to winning in the electoral college.
2: And if you if you look at where those outstanding ballots are still remaining in Georgia, you, if you, if you're Biden's campaign, you feel like there's enough because you're looking at Doherty County, which is Albany. You're looking at DeKalb, of course, the the biggest Democratic stronghold. You're looking at Chatham. You're looking at Bibb County. You're looking at Richmond County. You're looking still at still some Fulton County. Whereas there's still some Republican-leaning counties. With a- absentee ballots outstanding, but those are much smaller counties. Um, with the exception of Houston County, uh, which is the biggest trove of Republican votes, other than that, you're talking about very small uh, uh, rural counties with just a few hundred or, or maybe a few thousand votes between them. So mm-hmm. uh, Republicans will 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 build. Uh, you know, they'll get a few more. They'll get some more votes, but Democrats are, have real chance to cut in right now.
4: Yeah, I think I. Agree you know with Audrey, what's in the New York interesting. I'm sorry, I think Biden is a slight favorite to win Georgia right
1: now. I'm sorry, Ellen. I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, Audrey, what's interesting to me about this race What's interesting about this race here in terms of looking at returns is, you know, a lot, all of us on this panel are used to watching returns in a state like Georgia come in over the course of a night or even into the next morning. And we're used to this notion of rural counties reporting out faster. And it's mostly in person votes. And there's a big surge of Republican votes. And hours later, when Metro comes in, suddenly. Uh, th- th- the the Democratic votes begin uh, building. And in a lot of ways, I thought this election would um, unfold a little differently because of all the absentee balloting and all. But in fact, it really hasn't. It's just instead of in-person voting from the Democratic metro Atlanta areas, it's now the absentee ballots that are making that surge happen. And it's just a question of whether it's enough to overcome the red votes uh, that have already come in.
0: Right. And, you know, again, we, there was a lot of, um, uh, of discussion of that. Um, I would say that when we were talking about media coverage earlier, and this may go to your point, too, as sometimes I thought that the media um, – you know, it was talking about things like underperformance and overperformance very prematurely and really not encouraging people to really understand the dynamics of what was going on. And, you know, we are voting in a pandemic, and I would just go back to the fact that we need to be patient. And the most important thing is every vote should be counted, as Andre was saying. You know, Trump should do everything he can to, um, you know— Continue to promote that notion, because that is the most important thing that that we have. Um, And then we'll have some trust in the outcome of the race. And if he wins, that's better for him. And if Biden wins, it's better for him as well. But it's better for the country overall.
1: Got to take a break. When we come back, I want to pick up on something that Alan Abramowitz said a little while ago, and that is the extraordinary number of people here in Georgia and across the country who cast ballots in the 2020 general election. We'll do that after this break. Uh, just a quick program note again, we will be live at 2 o'clock this afternoon uh, to uh, update you on everything that's happening with the elections. We should know a lot more about the presidential race, perhaps whether David Perdue has gotten over or has, if whether Ossoff's kept him under 50 percent and much more. Um, and the other thing I wanted to point out to you is if you want to follow the election in real time, uh, GPB.org slash elections is a great digital uh, source for you for information as things are happening uh, throughout today. Alan Abramowitz, you uh, made a comment about the extraordinary turnout in this election. Uh, fill us in.
4: Right. So um, the uh, best estimate that we have right now, this comes from Michael McDonald of the University of Florida, who really does some extraordinary uh, uh, work on mapping, mapping voter turnout. Including the early voting turnout this year, um, he's estimating now that um, we'll have a total of 100, over 160 million votes uh, after all the votes have been counted. Uh, that's a big increase. I think what was 137 in 2016. Um, and uh, like that, so 160, yeah. mil, 160 million would be about 67 or 68 percent of eligible voters, based on our estimate of you know, how many eligible voters there are in the United States. Uh, that, that is the highest, or that would be the highest turnout in a presidential election since, I believe, 1908, before women, women's suffrage. Um, and the, the, the modern record uh, for turnout was the 1960 presidential election, I believe was about 63%. Um, 2008, we had a pretty high turnout. Um, in 2016, it was about 60% of eligible voters. So we're going from 60% to 67 or 68%. That's an extraordinary increase. And Georgia had a record turnout um, uh, in this election. Um, it looks like Georgia is going to be over 5 million votes, and um, about uh, close to 70% of eligible voters turning out to vote in Georgia. Being a swing state, I think, has something to do with that. Uh, the amount of attention that, that, that the state's been getting, from both parties, uh, from both presidential campaigns, um, is is what has been part and 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 all the uh, electioneering uh, uh, here within the state, driving that turnout up. So really extraordinary.
1: Andra, uh, has this election reshaped how people will vote from now on? Early voting and absentee or mail-in balloting is that here to stay? And did those uh, uh, uh instruments have something to do aside from the excitement over the election with why we've seen this extraordinary turnout
3: um i think that they are here to stay um i think what we've learned from this is that it's easier to manage elections when you spread them out over a period of time just the idea of trying to force everybody into trying to vote all one day creates its own problems and chaos um and so not that you know and so the fact that yesterday was pretty smooth, um, in part because so many people have already voted, I think is going to turn people on to the idea of, one, uh, supporting early voting periods, supporting uh, mail-in ballots. And I think the place where you may see changes start to happen are in states that were actually behind the curve in terms of adopting some of these norms. So Pennsylvania was forced by the pandemic to have to adopt some of these early voting practices because they were kind of calcified in that you vote on Election Day or you better have an excuse and only a legitimate excuse to vote via absentee ballot. So although my father, who lives in the Philadelphia suburbs, like, you know, still thinks that that's the way that you should do it. And I cannot convince him to change his mind about it. Like, I think the state is going to go along um, with this and make some changes.
1: Audrey?
0: You know, I, I, again, I agree with what Andra said. I think a lot of things are going to remain from COVID and it's had an impact on elections. But again, she's absolutely right. There are a lot of states. Um, even some states that are, are relatively considered progressive states that, you know, we're doing elections the old-fashioned way and not really allowing people to um, participate, especially the elderly and, and so on. This makes it much easier for people to participate. And I will say, I don't know how many, um, how many people received, uh, you know, access you know, send this in and get your absentee ballot. It was tremendous this year. A lot of the outside interest groups who were promoting, you know, uh, voting and early voting. Early voting is one of my favorite things too. But but can I add because I posted this that you know when we're looking at um, the outcome in various states, Florida had an initiative on the ballot and the initiative was to raise the minimum wage, the job-killing socialist minimum wage to fifteen dollars, and yet they voted for Trump, but they also voted for that. And it just tells you that very often we don't see, like, rational outcomes that we would expect in voting, right? So, I mean, there's that.
1: Uh, Greg Bluestein, we're not going to have enough time to get into this with any uh, detail uh, now. Maybe we'll take it up uh, with the 2 o'clock panel. But um, the Democrats did not, so far, really have underperformed in terms of picking up seats in the U.S. Senate. The races have not gone their way. And what that suggests is that with Leffler already in a runoff and Warnock, and if David Perdue is forced into a runoff, that is going to... I mean, Georgia was already going to be the center of the political universe over the next month uh, or uh, next two months. But if the, if, in fact... The Senate is still, you know, we're still not sure who's going to take control. That really puts Georgia in the spotlight.
2: It does. I mean, maybe we become the black hole that sucks all the attention uh, mm-hmm. towards us. But, yeah, <laughs> um, I think either way we were going to get a lot of attention because this would be looked at as a referendum on whatever happens in the, in the overall White House race. But certainly if, if control of the Senate hangs in the balance, ooh, get ready, get ready.
1: Greg Bluestein, you get the last word on today's show. And my thanks to you, because again, I know you, as you said earlier, you got about an hour's sleep. So thank you so much for being here. Audrey Haynes, uh, Andre Gillespie, Alan uh, Abramowitz, I know you didn't all get much sleep either, but it sure didn't show in the really smart conversation that we had with you today. And I'm very grateful to you uh, for uh, being with us today. My thanks to uh, Sam Burmis Dawes, to uh, Amelia Brock. And uh, to Jesse Neiswanger, who, by the way, wrote our special election theme music. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll be back at 2. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, get a flu shot. Take care, everybody.